Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. As ophthalmic surgeons, we live incredibly busy but rewarding lives. As we go from patient to patient, it is sometimes difficult to imagine finding the extra time to dedicate to new challenges and opportunities. In those moments, it's important to step back and become inspired by some of the more brilliant, hardworking minds in our field. In this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, I speak with Dr. Steve Charles about his remarkable career, from his beginnings in engineering school to how he became the accomplished retina surgeon he is today. If we simply listed all of Steve's accomplishments in medicine, this episode would be several hours long. As one of the brightest minds in the field, it is an honor to gain his perspective on how the industry has evolved, as well as hear his overall philosophy regarding his work ethic and dedication to helping others. Listen in. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of talking with and interviewing Dr. Steve Charles. Steve has been impactful, I think, in everything he's done in ophthalmology and even beyond ophthalmology. I think everyone will be delighted and interested to hear his story and also hear about what he's doing currently. So, Steve, uh, without further ado, thank you so much for taking some time uh, out of your schedule to talk to us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. So, Steve, I'd, I'd love to start from the beginning, just really getting a little bit of a historical perspective um, on your career, maybe what drew you to ophthalmology, and maybe give us a little bit of a historical perspective of where things started in your career and how you've seen things evolve and maybe where we're not, we are now and where things are even going. Sure. Um, I went to engineering school first. My, my uh, mentor was my maternal grandfather that was a mechanical engineer. I spent a lot of time with him growing up. There was no question from day one that I would go to engineering school. Never thought about being a physician, even though my paternal grandfather, who died before I was born, was a surgeon. And my dad's oldest brother, my godfather, was the, the most famous colon and rectal surgeon in, in the United States. Uh, I, I really didn't think about that career. So in, in engineering school, I, I kept looking for, uh, if you will, the right space, the right application for engineering. I have a certain moral underpinning, I guess you will, for how I do things. And, and I knew full well there's no way I'm going to design a machine that makes cigarettes or, or, or supports gambling or, or makes uh, alcoholic beverages or, or anything like that that I just don't believe in, or even working in Hollywood, frankly. Uh, I, so I didn't want to do anything like that. I wanted a meaning for what I designed. And so uh, I guess junior year in, in engineering school at the University of Oklahoma, it occurred to me that I could go to engineering school, uh, finish engineering school, and then go to medical school and specifically focus on microsurgery and designing medical devices. And I decided to do that before I even got to med school. I knew I wanted to be a microsurgeon. I loved to work under the microscope in the lab, working on printed circuits, and, and even when I took embryology, I loved it. And so with, I didn't have any money when I was in med school. I lived in the VA hospital, Coral Gables. I went to med school, hometown in the University of Miami. And, uh, and what I, and the residents uh, took me under their wing. I, within a week of starting medical school, I decided on ophthalmology, and I hung out with the Baskin-Palmer residents. I started within a few months working at Baskin-Palmer, the lab. 
they gave me all the, the from the VA, all the broken equipment from the operating room, and I would fix it because I've been a machinist and a welder, an electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, and I broadcast engineer. So I fix up all these instruments. I ripped off the the Peyton Stillwell abs, uh, Atlas rather uh, out of the VA library. Taught myself on dogs how to do uh, every, you know glaucoma filtering procedures, extra caps, lid procedures with nobody with me, and then I'd go scrub with the residents. And and so I learned. I started learning ophthalmology from day one. Within five, six months, Dr. Norton, who is you know, the professor and chair, basically the founder of the Baskin Palmer, gave me an indirect ophthalmoscope. So that was a, a real turning point. And, and who could be more fortunate than to have Dr. Norton, well, the most amazing guy ever, give me an indirect. And then at the end of my sophomore year, I was working constantly in the lab at Baskin Palmer, hand-built ERG DO machines from scratch, worked on ultrasound machines, television systems for the operating room, et cetera. Norton said, do you want to be a resident here? And I said, yes, sir, And I, if you want me to, sir. And, and he said, do you want to go interview at other places? I said, only if you want me to. And he said, okay, you're accepted. And I said, do I need to apply? I said, everybody in my class seems to want to go here. He said, no, you're in. And so those are the turning points, and I, and I never looked back. And I decided on a retina uh, halfway through medical school and uh, because Baskin Palmer was known for retina with Norton and, and Gas and Curtin, et cetera. And, of course, uh, then Mockhamer came along and started vitrectomy, so I got involved in that. And uh, now, in terms of where things are going, obviously, incisions got smaller and smaller uh, over the years. Uh, and, and Conor O'Malley was a huge factor. He came up with a three-port, 20-gauge uh, vitrectomy, and I consider that a huge turning point from the single uh, probe approach that Markhamer had. And then the other major thing in our field, other than minimally invasive vitrectomy surgery, is obviously the advent of anti-VEGF compounds. When I spent two years at National Eye Institute uh, post-residency, I was looking for what later became known as uh, vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF. Um, uh, so we were allowed to, I built the vitrectomy program in NEI, nobody had ever done a vitrectomy there, specifically because they allowed me to do PVR and, and PDR, and, and the PVR being the controls, because I was looking for what we then call vasoproliferative factor, and I was able to take uh, human patients with diabetic retinopathy that was uh, florid and and cause iris neovascularization in monkeys, so kind of satisfied Koch's postulates, but we were never able to purify the compound or figure out what it was, and of course, Napoleon Farrar did that and should get the the the, uh, the Nobel Prize, I hope, and, uh, and that's a, think about it, we've just virtually er eradicated diabetic retinopathy, vein occlusions, retinopathy, prematurity, uh, you know, in, in wet AMD with these anti-VEGF compounds, so that's That's the kind of a once a hundred years advance, just like vitrectomy was, and, and just like, of course, uh, cataract surgery and, and the, all the work that, that you and your colleagues do in small incision cataract surgery with interocular lenses. So what's interesting about that and what really strikes me is you wasted no time when you got to med school making yourself um, a linchpin for the residents, for the, the uh, OR staff at the VA, and even for, it sounds like, the chairman uh, at Baskin Palmer. You found ways, you found little ways to create value. And I really think that in some ways, there's no magic to becoming successful or um, having a great career if you apply yourself to being useful in every situation you can find and, and you don't waste your time and you don't have a lot of idle time. And As we've talked, you know, in the past and, and, and recently, I know that idle time is not something that you tolerate. Um, you may have the least tolerance for idle time 
of anyone I've ever met because you are so you want to make an impact. And um, talk to me a little bit about that. What's your what's your life philosophy on idleness or not applying yourself to things of impact? Well, I I am single and and I don't uh, date or anything much, and and so I work long hours. I haven't been on vacation in 21 years. I haven't seen a movie in 30. And when I go to dinner, somebody will sit next to me, uh, typically, uh, you know, some businessman or maybe a lady, and they'll say, well, what do you do? And I say, I do surgery, engineering, and teaching. And they'll say, uh, so what do you do for fun? And I'll say, well, I just told you. And they'll say, so it's your passion. And I'll say, well, yeah, I enjoy it. But does it occur to you that there's a, a moral imperative to do things that help other people? Uh, I said, if I work really hard and don't make any money on it or get credit for it, but somebody in India can see or China or, or across the street from where I live can see because I invented some technique or technology, then I've done the right thing. And people say, but don't you want to just get away from it all? No, I don't want to get away from it at all. Why would I get away? If I could read uh, on photonics or read on politics or control theory, I mean, I have, there are many social issues I'm concerned about, but if I read fiction or I watched a movie or I played golf or I fished, that's a distraction from my mission. And I think you ought to do a mission, these sorts of things, without a press release, without a photo op, without right. a getting credit for it, right. without a pat on the back. You'd, I, I often will tell the fellows, be nice to the nurses, be nice to the secretaries. Why? So they'll help you? No, because it's morally right. So I, I, that's what drives me uh, is to not waste time, not to uh, – now, meanwhile, I read – I fly jet and I read about avionics. I read about, uh, about all aerodynamics and I try to transfer the technology from the cockpit into the operating room, which there's, in terms of an operating metaphor, they're quite similar. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm actually reading a checklist manifesto right now. Uh, which, you know, uh, my partner, Lance Ferguson, is a pilot as well. And it, it seems that there are a lot of things you can do with checklists that really translate from not only the cockpit and, and flight safety, but also surgical safety. And uh, we really have that, that similar approach. And, and there's, let me embellish on that. Sure. In addition to the checklist notion, there's the notion of complete and total focus where if, if when you're, for example, in flying jets, there's what's called the sterile cockpit rule. Below 10,000 feet, you simply don't talk about where did you park your car or are you going to have dinner or whatever. You simply focus on everything having to do with getting that airplane uh, uh, airborne or on the ground in a safe manner. And in the cockpit, excuse me, in the operating room, it's the same thing. I don't play music in the operating room. I used to years ago, but I I want to hear what the patient says. I want to hear if there's a conversation between the CRNA and the MD anesthesia people. If the circulator says we're running out of such such, I want to hear all that, and I want to be able to talk to the patient. And that doesn't happen if you're playing music. Uh, so I'm, I'm when I walk in an operating room and the fellow maybe has started a case. I, I, I look at every little thing, how they sit in their chair, how their hands are held, where the drape is, where the EKG leads are, and I just keep watching all that stuff sort of in a, in a, in a high alertness awareness state. And I think that's crucial to do a good job. And you have to be very flexible to fly uh, high-performance aircraft and in the operating room. If this happens, you'd go that path. If that happens, you'd go this way. Contingencies. So Contingencies <laughs> is crucial right. to have that flexibility. Absolutely. You know, your moral compass is is highly tuned. I'm not saying that just to, you know as a as a pat on the back. It's it's I see it really in in as the big why behind the the things and the activities you choose to do. Um, so a couple a couple questions. You are someone who 
um, has been highly active in industry. You've been you've developed your own innovations. Where do you where do you see um, industry getting it right? Um, keeping the big big why questions right, and where do you see industry maybe getting it wrong sometimes? And maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Sure, um, I am very active in the operating room. I've done thirty seven thousand vitrectomies. So so, and I'm very active in engineering. I spend a ton of time studying engineering. Why? If you don't know both of those spaces, uh, if you don't know both of those disciplines. There's, there's not a chance of doing something really significant. So we see a lot. Of, let me give you an example of things that, that are, I think, overly inflated right now. Oh, my God, digital health. It'll be wonderful. We'll manage all this congestive heart failure. We'll manage diabetes, you know, with digital health. So, Meaning algorithms that detect and try to... Well, the notion of the patients at home and you're managing right. them in that manner. So, oh, it's all about wearables. So they're going to have... Uh, well... When you really get down to it, you're still going to say either they take insulin or some of the medications or they don't. They either restrict salt and take their hypertension medicines or they don't. They either do whatever they need to do for, say, COPD. But at the end of the day, is digital health going to solve a hip replacement, a knee replacement, a lens replacement, an abscess, a gallbladder, an appendix, a stent or intervention? The answer is no. But it's, we're so trendy. That, that Let me give you an example. There were 40-some-odd companies that worked on renal denervation for hypertension. And then the Medtronic trial showed that it didn't work and all the other companies went. And every one of those companies uh, patted themselves in the back. They all had rotator cuffs from doing so, claiming that they were disruptive and <laughs> paradigm shift and sea change uh, because they went to Stanford and got an MBA after the engineering degree and walked around in a blue blazer without a tie. And, and But when you look <laughs> around, excuse me, all of you got it wrong. Right. 40 companies, they can't all be disruptive. You know, right. one was. And, and, and it turns out it didn't work. Right. Same thing happened with TAVR, the endo, endovascular aortic valve replacement. And Edwards Life Sciences got it right, picked the one company, Medtronic, as I recall, infringed, had to pay a big check for infringing on the patent, and all the other companies disappeared into the wilderness. And and so problem number one, Me Too technologies. Right. A, tr a huge amount of Me Too technologies. Uh, secondly, overemphasis on, on, on digital health defined as remote care. Okay, you know I get it. Why, if there's ICUs over the place and nobody will go look at RLP babies, my associate does telemedicine for that. Makes sense, right? But 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 it doesn't solve all problems. When I hear big data, well, if we all practice electronically as opposed to document after the fact, and without using the model of genome-wide association studies, which Greg Hageman knocked it out of the park to figure out how do we get AMD by doing genes. So he took 4,000 some odd patients, whatever it was, that had known AMD, 4,000 that didn't, and looked at SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms in a genome-wide association study, and figured it out. Right. And everybody else's putative genes that caused it were wrong. Okay, got it right. Well, if you take that sort of non-structured approach into data mining and say, you know, we found out that everybody that needs toast before they have a refractive cataract surgery gets a quarter of a diopter of error, and, and, and nobody in the world would have thought of that. We said, well, stop eating toast. Right. It'll be better. <laughs> and, and so I get that. That sort of data mining does make sense. So I'm not down to digital health across the board, but you have to practice electronically uh, with real data from machines tied into it and not record after the fact to make that work. Right. Got it. So in your career, um, what areas of innovation would you say 
you're most proud of that you made the biggest impact? What what things when you look back over you know a really storied career, um, and that can either be surgically with patients or engineering. What are the things that you have spent the time on that you you say, hey, I got that right. I really I'm glad I did that. Well, on the technique side, I invented fluid air exchange, internal drainage and supplemental fluid, forceps membrane peeling, scissors segmentation, scissors delamination, uh, linear suction, which is on all phaco and vitrectomy machines, or linear aspiration, if you want to call it that. Uh, I may have mentioned endophotocoagulation, uh, uh, punch through retinotomy for subretinal surgery, retinectomy. So that's the technique side. On the technology side, I alluded to linear suction. I, I did a, a startup called Bid Labs with the late Carl Wong. That was the first disposable vitreous cutter that was self-sharpening, the first lightweight little pneumatic cutter. Uh, and then and then on the systems integration side, I was the, the principal architect of both the Acris and the Constellation, which have like 86% worldwide share preference and, uh, and with Alcon Laboratories. So those machines are, are, are the best-selling vitreous machines in the world. And, and, uh, and I was involved in the fluidics as well as the cutter and, and the illumination as well as the, the man-machine interface. So I would say those are the main things. Gotcha. So in any career that has spans as, as, as deep and as wide as yours, surely there have been things that haven't worked out. And, and sometimes those are the things in our life that teach us the important lessons. Anything stand out in your career where you maybe you thought you had it right, but maybe you... It was, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Talk, talk about that a little if, bit. Yeah, I think that's important it, that we gotta, talk about. Well, I, I invented uh, sheathotomy, which is actually not, I call it for branch vein decompression, except it doesn't work. Okay. And, uh, and I was an idiot because I only did a few cases and then stopped instead of doing a randomized trial and then publishing, see, don't do this. Okay. I also invented macular translocation, presented at Baskin Palmer. Mockamer was in the front row, heard the presentation, and then he invented it, and then others <laughs> adopted it, but I right. didn't do it in humans. And my final talk was, this causes PVR in animals. Don't do this in people. A lot of people got blinded and got macular folds and a variety of other problems uh, from having translocation. And so I, I would have been far better off to publish the negative data from the animal studies. So, and so yeah, yes, those were two creative ideas that made sense to try them. Right. Fortunately, I stopped one without hurting any patients. The other one I never tried in a patient. But a lot of patients got hurt by that. Uh, by the latter one, by translocation. And then on the other side of it, persistence is crucial. Uh, my medical robotics company that I built for neurosurgery because my dad died of a brain tumor, I got that acquired by Stryker. 52 venture capital companies turned us down before Medtronic and Baxter and Allegiance v. Mueller and finally Stryker invested. So persistence. If you know it needs to be out there, the technology, if you know the the clinical need must be met, you just push until you get it done. Right. So, you know, a couple other areas I'd love to dive into. Um, I know that you're an avid um, athlete. You, you, you're religious about your workouts. And uh, I think too many times, you know, surgeons, we, we like to take care of our mind we may neglect our body a little bit. And, I, and I've, over the past couple of years, have really been trying to to strike a better balance there. And uh, what advice would you have? What What is your, what is your uh, workout regimen look like? How do you take care of yourself and, and keep active, not only mentally, but physically, and keep your body ready to go to work? Well, I do. Uh, I lift weights three times a week. I, I, I don't want a trainer because I want to have thinking time, and no trainer would allow me to work out as heavy as I do. <laughs> I'm benching 250 in my workouts. I'm leg pressing 500, uh, and I weigh 189. I'm 74 years old, so I really push it hard when I lift. 
not no steroids, no HGH, no testosterone, no trying for max, no competition, just absolutely steady working out. And then I do cardio twice a week. Uh, I broke my neck a couple times and broke my leg. So I have bone grafts. And I don't want to run anymore. I used to run a lot. And so now I ride a recumbent bike, a stationary bike, and that's safe. And I can burn 600 calories an hour. So you got to have a mix of cardio and resistance training. But using light weights and high reps is just plain stupid. The guy that uh, Ellington Darden that invented uh, Nautilus, came up with the notion that it's about horsepower, which is force times distance times time. So some people call that super slow, good idea. So move the weight slowly so you don't rip tendons and get rotator cuffs and things. Uh, but but you got to push it or you're not going to. I, I, I grow a beard the three mornings I lift and not the two mornings I do cardio. Why? Endogenous HGH. Interesting. Important. Very interesting. So Things outside of medicine and engineering uh, that you're passionate about, I know that you give back to the community, and I hope I don't embarrass you by talking about this. I know you don't do it for the pat on the back. You do it because it's the right thing to do. But um, talk about the social impact that you you try to have, that, that you try to invest in in your in your community. I think that's another thing that as surgeons, you know, as doctors in our community, you know, we're looked we're looked up to to lead. Um, not just our patients, but also to step up and, and, and speak out on issues that are important to us. What issues um, are important to you that you're trying to uh, move forward in Memphis? Well, I know a lot of physicians will go to the heart gala, the cancer gala, or the American Diabetes Association, all of which are good things, and walk around in a tuxedo with a champagne glass in their hand and, and, uh, you know, and donate $200. And it's better than not doing that. But that doesn't appeal to me. It's too much show and not enough go. Right. And so uh, I didn't do this intentionally. It happened serendipitously like many things do. I walked out of my office after a long day, saw 60-some-odd patients, and there's a police officer, great big, huge guy in uniform, African-American guy, tutoring his son in algebra. And I started to walk past him, and I said, man, this is this is awesome. So I went up to the guy and I said, I don't have any power. I'm not in charge of anything, but I'm going to give you an award for real dad. And he said, well, see this badge? He said, that's for officer of the year. You know what I do? I do community outreach. He said, did you hear that about that 10-year-old girl that got shot in the head and killed yesterday? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, I spent all night with the five friends of hers trying to keep these 10-year-olds from trying to kill the, the, the perpetrator because they knew who it was. And, he, and so a couple weeks later, he and his partner that also played college football, about 6'6", 240, the two of them pulled me over. And they say, hey, Dr. Charles, let me see your driver's license registration. I said, come on, guys, it's me. And they're like, hey, listen, we've we're got about 250 inner city kids. Will you come participate? And I said, uh, sure. I said, I'll, I'll fund, I'll speak, I'll hang, what, you know, I'll chat, what, whatever. And right. I said, but you need to bet my speech. I don't want to be, you know, you know the, the big doctor lecturing the inner city kids. It's right. not right. And so they betted my speech, and I took a very hard position on, a, on, a, on an issue I believe I work hard on, and that's domestic violence. And I took a very hard line position on, on drug abuse, uh, the idea that marijuana is a gateway drug, which I believe. And uh, so I, and he said, come get it. So I did. And, and, and then I've, I've now I became Santa's helper for a couple of years. And then I was <laughs> Santa last year. So I work with these two police officers. And then I from that, I met the right people. I was on the board of the National Domestic Violence Hotline. You know, and we went to board meetings and tried to do the right thing. And the organization certainly does. But I didn't feel like I was making an impact. And then through these guys, I met the Memphis and Shelby County Domestic Violence Council, where I live, and I, I'm very active helping specific people I know and social workers in the whole domestic violence space. You know, I think that is, um, 
as I'm sitting here, I'm sort of feeling a little guilty. I think of all the people who have, who probably don't have time to do those sorts of things. I would probably put your name at the top of the list. And yet you find time for the things that matter. Um, and, and that's sort of a, a, I think a struggle for all of us. Sometimes we feel like we're busy. Um, we might feel stressed, but I think that's a, that's a narrative we tell ourselves sometimes to um, excuse ourselves from inaction or excuse ourselves from not doing what we know we, we perhaps should. So I think it's a good reminder to, uh, to me personally, and probably to, to a lot of folks who are listening but, you know, but Keep there, your there's eyes also open. cycles in your life. I mean, clearly when my, I have three daughters, two are physicians, and they were way up in their class, number two and number 10. And the other one is a team building uh, expert. And they're just awesome kids, daughters. And uh, I spent a lot of time. I taught them how to drive a car, how to drive, how to drive a boat, how to water ski, how to ride a bike, uh, how to swim, how to ski. And I was very active with them, much more so than their, their mother. And, uh, and, and, and that's was, so then as they, now they're out of the community, raising money for charity, working hard, doing the right thing. Then, I, then that time I spent with them, I can spend with others that need help, and the, particularly these people in the inner city that are just, uh, just overwhelmed. So, other question. Let's let's segue a little bit. What's next for Steve Charles? What what are the next chapters that you are are wanting to write in in your book? What are you working on now? What excites you? What gets you out of bed? Well. Uh, of course, I'm working on the next generation machine with Alcon. That uh, the constellations, eight and a half, I guess, years old, and and I before that the Acres, and so. Uh, uh, but they've expanded. We're we're now uh, very very. Uh, 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 embedded in this whole visualization space. So ingenuity, uh, endoscopy, uh, all interoperative OCT, a variety of different things to, to improve. You know, simplistically, if you can't see it, you can't do it. If you right. see it better, you do it better. So a lot of focus on the visualization side, in addition to, you know, fluidics and tissue cutting and laser delivery and illumination, the things that are core to the vitrectomy process, and, and tighter integration with, with FACO. And uh, so we're working really hard on that. So that's all my engineering consulting is all with Alcon, except I built a visualization company for Neurospine and ENT, and I don't actively run that, although I'm the chairman. Uh, and that company is uh, came about because I built a, a, a similar robotics company for neurosurgery after my dad died of a brain tumor. But that one is at the stage now where others run it. And, uh, and I'm not active in that space. And then I, I continue to train because I fly a jet and you either do that like a pro or you die. And I'm constantly training and fly, uh, fly a business jet with pros and, and go to the simulator all the time and then fitness. And that's work hard. I do 18 vitrectomies a week and work 52 weeks a year. That's incredible. Well, Dr. Charles, we could probably continue to talk for hours um, and get in the weeds about all sorts of things. But I would like to say this, um, anytime you're in Lexington, if you want to have a, a $100 hamburger and come up and uh, fly from Memphis to Lexington, um, I would love to take you out and uh, continue more of these conversations. Um, every time I talk to you, um, I get a little bit smarter. and I think I get a little bit uh, kinder um, because that's just what rubs off uh, when you, you talk so to people. It's a pleasure talking with you. You're a terrific guy, and I look forward to being your friend over the years. Oh, it's a tremendous pleasure. As we just heard, Dr. Steve Charles has had such a fascinating career. It's inspiring to hear how much his hard work and dedication to helping others has paid off over his long and storied history. 
By following his example, if we as ophthalmic surgeons can limit distractions and continuously work to improve ourselves, it seems the sky is the limit. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. If you like what you hear, please head on over to iTunes and rate, review, and subscribe. If there's a topic you'd like to delve into or a brain you'd like to pick, your suggestions are welcome. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.